Planet Pod, the podcast for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to Planet Pod. I'm Amanda Carpenter and today we're talking about money, green money. And when we talk about the green pound, this isn't a throwback to the old pound notes. It's actually what we mean by the green economy in its widest sense. So that's green finance, social investing, sustainable investment, sustainable income. And it's a huge subject. So to help me explore this and understand it, I've got a very rich, excuse the pun, uh, panel of guests in the studio with me today. Um, I'm going to give you a brief uh, overview of their um, skills and experience and backgrounds, because if I went into their full CVs, we'd be here all day. So Jessica Fries is the executive chairman of the Prince's Accounting for Sustainability Project, known as A4S. And it was set up by the Prince of Wales in 2004 to inspire finance leaders to drive real shifts towards resilient business models and a sustainable economy. She has a background in finance. Um, she leads A4S um, around the national decision making. And it's really an integrated approach to risks and opportunities around in finance and the environment and social issues. So welcome, Jessica. Hi, Amanda. It's great to be here. My second guest, uh, Michael Manelli, is a visiting professor at LSE, and he's also executive chairman of ZN. Um, and among other things, they produce the Green Global Finance Index, and we're going to talk about that later. He was educated at Harvard and Trinity College Dublin. He's an alderman of the City of London, and he's third book called The Price of Fish um, won an award in the Independent Publisher Awards for Finance, Investment and Economies. So I'd really like to talk to him about that too. However, he does say one of his biggest technical claims to fame is the um, he invented the first commercial digital map of the world, Mundocart, which was crucial to the foundation of World Conservation Monitoring Centre. So welcome, Michael. Amanda, glad to be here. My third guest today, Paul Druckmann, describes himself as a passionate global leader in capital market reform, from governance to reporting, accounting and sustainability. He led the International Integrated Reporting Council, difficult to say, as its CEO, and he now sits on its board. Um, he's an entrepreneur, particularly around software. He's the chair of the Clear Group, um, and he continues to work in, in all of those fields, but he's currently responsible for a government project on the culture of social impact investing in the UK. See, I told you they were experienced. So welcome, Paul. Hello. Um, so as you can see, we've got this wealth of talent. Sorry, another pun. Um, and I keen to get going, but regular listeners to the pod will know that we always start with our good, the bad and the ugly slot. And I think I'm going to ask Jessica to kick off. Jessica, have you got a good, a bad or ugly? I have, Amanda. So I've been keeping an eye out. I knew this was going to be coming. And actually something that was announced yesterday and is very much in the sustainable finance theme. 
So you had an announcement that the members of the European Parliament have backed a resolution on sustainable finance. And this is really the latest support for the kind of reform that is needed to enable um, really sustainable finance to become the norm, which is certainly what we think needs to happen. You've had a whole series of reports and recommendations. So earlier this year, something called the High Level Expert Group on Sustainable Finance, which had a series of recommendations, which the um, European Union has been looking at how they act upon. And so this is the latest support for that. Here in the UK, you've also had um, the UK Green Finance Task Force, which um, builds on some of those recommendations and looks from a UK context what actions need to be taken. Um, and of course, Paul will, I'm sure, talk more about the, the social impact and, and UK task force around that. But I think it's really important that you get that regulatory framing, remove some of the barriers, put the right incentive structures in place. Um, we work with a lot of investors, companies and others who really want to take action. And I think there's a huge amount that can happen without government intervention. But you do need the right regulatory frameworks. And so I think this is a, um, a good, another positive signal of progress. That's fantastic. And I completely agree with you that while businesses have to take responsibility, we as individuals have to take responsibility, we do need that regulatory, governmental policy and action that both supports and leads change. So it's great to have that. And thank you for your good. How about you, Michael? Have you got a good, a bad or ugly? Well, I might grab all three, though I'll be brief. <laughs> Uh, firstly, on good, I was extremely encouraged to hear about Guernsey bringing out green fund regulation. So it's seeing the regulators beginning to pay attention. I hope that's picked up. When I look at bad, I am continually disappointed as somebody who's been in the distributed ledger, smart ledger, uh, these days blockchain field for over 20 years. Uh, people not understanding the cryptocurrency experiments have gone mad. We were talking about the energy consumption of Ireland being saved every two years, but we're not. We're talking about the energy consumption of Ireland being consumed every two years in increases. So it's frightening. Uh, there's a lot of good in the technology, but it's not in the crypto market. And finally, ugly. As somebody who is very committed to reducing environmental damage, clearly plastics need to be addressed. But the knee-jerk banning immediacy of current reactions are going to lead to some serious unintended consequences. And while everybody's jumping on the bandwagon, they're not looking at the alternatives, the through-life costing, the transitional changes. They're all trying to grab credit for the obvious. Yeah, I think you'd be right. We've been talking about that on the pod over the last few weeks, actually. And you're not the first person to say the ban is good, but. So I think... With all these issues, we have to have a moderated and sensible and thought-through response, and that's often not what one gets. Paul, good, bad, or ugly? Or um, all three? Well, I, no, I, I chose the good um, because that's, that's just the nature of um, the optimism that I think we need to engender. Um, it was actually a couple of weeks ago. I, I spotted it in the Bloomberg news, but it 
came out in other newspapers as well, which was that Britain had generated um, electricity from coal for more than three days in sequence. And that's the longest streak since the 1880s. Um, so whilst one mustn't get too optimistic about it, it is at least um, something to grab hold of. So it's electricity from coal or without coal? Without coal, sorry. Yeah. So I, yeah. wholly renewable. Yeah. Um, okay, fantastic. Yeah. Oh, well, I don't think it was wholly renewable. It was it just was... without coal. Oh, I see. But okay. it's, it's, it's a sign. It is a sign and it's definitely good. Well, I've got a good, which is unusual because I'm usually a bad and ugly girl. But um, my good is a, a bit of a shout out, actually, to BT, um, who get a lot of stick for lots and lots of things. But they've recently um, shown that through their consumer operation and products, they've able to, to contribute to carbon savings worth more than £5.3 billion last year. So there's a direct correlation between action that business takes and the bottom line. And we all know that being green and being sustainable makes good business sense, but being able to evidence it with, with hard cash facts that contribute to your bottom line is really, really important. I suspect Michael will probably challenge that now because hopefully the stats will have let us down. So thank you for that, everybody. I th already we've started to use some terms and expressions that perhaps some of our listeners may not be aware of because the pod goes out for a very wide base. So so I'm, I might ask you to, to, to set some context for us, Jessica, and explain a little bit about what we mean when we talk about sustainable investments, sustainable finance, and really in the context of, of the businesses and the organisations you're working with. Um, if you could just kind of give us a little bit of brief overview and then tell us perhaps a little bit more about A4S. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Amanda. So I think regular listeners of your podcast will be really well aware of the kind of trends that we're facing. One of the annual reports that we find for the business community and for a lot of investors really reinforces a sign of change in awareness of the kind of trends and concern about the financial economic consequences that social environmental issues will have is the World Economic Forum's Global Risk Report. And what you've seen of the last decade or so, every year they publish the top risks in terms of likelihood and impact. Um, really looking at it from an economic perspective, given the World Economic Forum, I think that's what you'd expect. And this year, 2018 report, eight of the top 10 risks were either environmental or social in nature. Um, if you go back a decade or so ago, there were the odd one occasionally, but really not that kind of dominance. And, and I, the top three, I believe, are all environmental. Can you tell us what kind of things those so, risks could be? One of the top risks, unsurprisingly, is climate change and failure to adapt and mitigate around climate change. And of course, climate change is something that acts as a multiplier on other risks. Um, things like water stress, food stress, and of course, how that might interact with some of the social drivers and risks like involuntary migration. Um, so I think you see some of those trends really already starting to hit. And 
the next decade or two, you'll see those problems exacerbating. You also, of course, have increasing population growth. Um, and again, therefore, that increases our demand on resources and um, exacerbates those risks, unless we can really find some quite radical solutions. What we find, of course, is that there are significant costs if we fail to adapt. Um, a little while ago, there was a report that Aviva had commissioned from the Economist Intelligence Unit looking at the cost of inaction in around specifically climate change. And um, you know the numbers were very significant in terms of the economic losses. And of course, this builds on things like the Stern Review, which Michael, you mentioned um, in some of the discussions earlier. We need to therefore really radically decarbonize and start thinking about how do you get to net zero carbon, which I think is a very different mindset than just incremental reduction. The flip side of that, of course, is the kind of opportunities that exist in finding the solutions. Um, and again, one of the, the fairly recent reports by the Business and Sustainable Development Commission um, identified $12 trillion in opportunities to come up with solutions around the sustainable development goals, which was one of the other big UN intergovernmental agreements in 2015, alongside the Paris Climate Agreement. So I think that... So that did you say 12 trillion? 12 trillion, yeah. Okay. So they were talking really seriously huge amounts of money that are actually part of the opportunity. So that's weighing against some of those risks and downsides that you've just talked about. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, um, so that's an incentive and a motivator for business? Absolutely. And I think we see that positive motivator really starting to grab some attention. So if I think of some of the businesses that we work with, they're really wanting to try and get a handle both on the cost side of the equation so how much will a failure to understand and respond to these issues cost them? But also, where are cost savings? And um, you know, there are often a clear, a clear connection between environmental and resource use and cost bases, although not always easy to right. get to. So it's not as simple as um, you know, reducing the costs. You need to be quite creative sometimes. Really work with other partners, work along the whole whole value chain, so with your suppliers, with your customers, to really tease out some of those cost savings. But also risk mitigation and innovation um, are certainly some of the drivers that we see coming through. Because for, for businesses, the cost saving is obvious. You know, my example from BT was actually about a pr productive thing, about a proactive thing. So consumer products rather than just saving money, because mm -hmm. Once you've put some of those savings in place, it's very difficult, isn't it, year on year to build on them because you do all the obvious things. You reduce your energy costs and your travel costs and you encourage your staff to work differently and you take the, the, the if you like, the unsustainable fat out of the organisation. So, so talk to me a little bit about what can businesses do and the sorts of people you're working with who come from a mainly financial perspective, don't they? So they're not out with consumers or customers or on, on product lines. What can they do to, to, to generate income opportunities, do you think, from some of these things you've been talking about? So I think around the income opportunity 
side. Um, one of the companies that we work with is Royal DSM. They're a Dutch company. And they've really reshaped their whole business around trying to find solutions to both social and environmental trends and, and issues. And they see they've they've created what they call their brighter living solutions. Originally it was the People Plus and Eco Plus products. Mm. And they're products which are explicitly positioned to be having higher environmental or social benefits than comparable products. And they've been putting quite a rigorous process in place to try and really make sure that um, it's not just greenwash, it is backed by numbers and they can demonstrate where that improvement comes from. Um, and they, they found that those kind of products um, have had 62%, I believe, um, of total sales. And their ambition is that that will be 65% of total sales by 2020. So a really big contribution to the organization's growth um, and sales. Paul? I just wanted to intercede there a second, Jessica, if I can. Because you, you mentioned the sort of opportunities that there are. But you, you, and you also mentioned the sustainable development goals. And I, th I think there is something that, that, that we're missing at the moment, is that uh, with the sustainable development goals, the, they're meant for economies and countries, etc. However, they are and they will have impacts um, at a macro level on the market. And, you know, the, the biggest thing that I'm seeing is a lack of understanding of that. People are saying, well, you know, how can we as a capital market actually engage with the sustainable development goals? And what they're not understanding it is it isn't about taking each one and building that into their business. It's understanding what the, the impacts of, those, uh, of that happening, um, you know, with economies and countries providing incentives or changes. And I think that's an important point which is where DSM, as you talk about, such a great exemplar of a company, um, are prob probably coming at it from the sort of macro leading into strategy and through. Jessica? Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, even with the investor community, we're finding quite a lot of organisations using the Sustainable Development Goals as a way of trying to understand how their investments do have a broader impact and can they align the kind of investments that they're making with positive social outcomes and tackling some of those environmental challenges and that shift in the economy? One of the things that we've just recently published with the CFO finance community, so the work that we do with the corporate community, is um, around that whole strategic planning, budgeting process. It doesn't sound like a very sexy subject, but um, ultimately, if you're not allocating money um, in the right way, then you're going to struggle to really integrate these kind of issues into decision-making. And if you're not integrating into decision-making, um, you're not going to get the kind of outcomes that you need to, and whether that's maximizing the benefits or, or responding to the risks. So through that guide, we've 
shared really practical examples of around some of that planning cycle and also budgeting. What are simple things that companies can do to really increase the incentives to invest in these kind of areas? And just one simple example is around ring fencing. So a lot of companies, and I think at the individual level, it's very simple, is not necessarily the biggest cost. For some, of course, it, it really is a significant cost. And then cost can be a motivator to act and find solutions. But for a lot of organizations, it's marginal if you look at the, the totality of the organization. So it's not always going to be the most significant cost. And by prioritizing within the spend, actually, I think a lot of organizations can be surprised about how much they can save. Yeah, and I think it's fair to say that that's as relevant for a smaller business as it is for a huge one. And that kind of segues beautifully into the work that you've been doing, Michael, doesn't it? Because as the kind of author and driver of the Global Financial Index, the Green Global Financial Index, your findings have shown that actually in the UK, we have got one or two things to be proud of. We're, we're top of the field in some of these areas. Can you share a little bit about the work you've been doing? Yes, we uh, decided uh, many years ago that we would like to bring out a, an index rating uh, global green financial centres. But we felt back in 2005-06, it was too early. The field was immature. Uh, we, in fact, have gotten quite a bit of criticism for the current one that it's too early but I thought after a decade it was about time to have a go and the purpose behind the index which has been sponsored by the Mava Foundation in Switzerland is twofold I mean the first is to start to measure what you manage and the second is to start a debate about what's green and so you can look at a few areas for example could I have a green financial center that's belching out coal fire power stations? So there's a lot of great deals being done in saving the planet and water and forestry, but just locally, it's pretty unlivable. Or would I rather have a wonderful, livable, you know, electric tram, solar powered, low impact, uh, beautiful environment that is making hydrocarbon deals? So what is it? Uh, and we pushed that out to a number of people globally. We rated 47 centers on 113 instrumental factors, and we rated really the penetration of green into finance in reality and the quality of the advice that they were obtaining locally. Most uh, of what the index showed was that green is still at a formative stage uh, with relatively low ratings overall. The second thing, if you were uh, a skeptic, is that it, it indicates that it's a bit of a Western European bit of fluff, um, not a lot of interest elsewhere. Uh, and thirdly, it would say that whilst technically uh, London did come number one, it's marginal. So we're at an early stage. What it has done, which is encouraging for us, has been it ha a number of centers around the world outside of Western Europe responding to this as a theme. Is this the way we're going to be rated in future? If so, what are you looking at? If so, how do we change people's perceptions about the work that we do? 
So it's been very good. Uh, we're bringing this out every six months uh, for the next three years. That's the budget. And so we have high hopes that three years from now, we'll be having a much more mature, nuanced, and clearer debate. But we just decided to step into some somewhat murky waters to get it going. <clears throat> That's really interesting. And I'm particularly interested in that problem you have or that, that central, I suppose, question about how we balance the world in which we're working, i.e. the community, the green community drivers with the reality of business needs to get done. So, mm. you know, we'll make a deal, we'll have a beautiful, sustainable city and we'll make some really very unsustainable investments or some stale deals. Did you decide which was more important out of those two drivers or did you just say, look, this is something we can't resolve, we just need to explore it? It was much more the latter. Um, I hasten to add in our approach, which I don't want to go into, it's quite technical, we use a statistical method to have the weightings of the instrumental factors provided by the community. So I and my team do not weight them. These are actually done by the participants. So we hope to use that as a weighting. Otherwise, we're just a bunch of gray-haired guys deciding what the weights are. But I would, I would emphasize something. I, I was encouraged by Jessica's uh, uh, starting really with the risk approach, and we contributed to the Business Sustainability Development Commission and things like that. But when you come to green, and your BT example is a good one, and I'm not picking on BT by any means, but I might give you an imaginary example of green and some of the junk that's talked. So I run a firm that has a lot of light bulbs. And my marketing director comes to me and says, go for all these green light bulbs. And I say, great, you know, are you going to pick up the bill? Well, it'd be good if we were green, but I don't want to pick up the bill. Somebody from procurement comes and says, let's get rid of all of our light bulbs. Let's use green light bulbs. Why? Well, they're more efficient. They last longer and they're actually a better buy. Well, you idiot. Why did you take so long to come to me? It's not a green argument. It's a business <laughs> argument. Now, that boils down to the third area, and this is the area where taking the strategic approach matters. Somebody comes to me and says, hey, boss, off in the distance, it looks like electricity prices are really going to rise. Can you prove it? Nope. It's a strategic assumption. And I think, well, actually, that would help me reduce future volatility. In other words, I can increase certainty of performance by taking a little bit of a risk. Now, to me, that is green. And so a lot of the bunkum is I've got a green product. Well, is it cheaper? Is it this? Is it that? And it's only when you get to the core of a business that says, I'm doing this for the long term. And it is the long term that I think defines green. Jessica? Maybe, Amanda, if I can come in there, certainly I think that that underlines we find a lot of businesses the evidence isn't always there. Sometimes you need to be positioning yourself strategically and backing your beliefs. It's starting to come out in terms of the evidence and lots and lots of examples of others. But I think there are still a lot of organizations which maybe set an aggressive carbon reduction target as, a, as an easy starting point in terms of the, the total carbon, so the whole embodied carbon as is often called so they're mm. looking at the whole value chain rather than just the organization's emissions setting aggressive reduction targets 
and not compromising on things like cost, but just setting that target requires real innovation to come up with solutions that are going to achieve it. And as a byproduct, you often see some of those cost savings or better resilience, but that's not the kind of information you had at the beginning of the decision. You just knew you needed to achieve that target. And that was the thing that drove the innovation. Paul? I just wanted to bring in the regulator piece because I sit on the board of the, the, the Financial Reporting Council. And I think it's relevant to this piece about that, that, that uh, Michael and Jessica have been talking about. Because the new corporate governance code, well, the revised corporate governance code, which will be coming out um, shortly, actually now has a section around purpose and actually trying to say that underpinning that, your strategy must be longer term so that you understand where you're heading. Um, and therefore, these things are, are, are integrated into um, your your business and your products as, as such. Um, and the other thing, again, with the sort of regulatory hat on, is this section 172, that those, those of us in the know just have to say that. Um, but for your listeners, it's part of the Companies Act, um, in fact, in 2006. And section 172 says the company does have a responsibility to its shareholders, of course, but actually it also has to look at wider issues. And the first sort of sub-clause in that section is around the long term. So it really reinforces this, this whole topic, I think. I think so much of the sustainability green debate is actually, this isn't a tomorrow or even a day after tomorrow or the end of next year, we are talking a whole lifetime, aren't we? So that sense of long-term thinking, long-term planning, being strategic and possibly going with what you think is your gut rather than the hard evidence helps some of that decision-making. And it's almost trusting that you've, you're heading in the right direction. And then if you've got indicators to support that, then obviously that makes your case much stronger and, and, and obviously convinces people for whom finance is the first and last in their terms of the decision-making. But the, the decision-making has to start at the board. Yes. Right, yeah. and you've got to be careful. I mean, the board is given information, um, but, but at that board level, you do have to um, be part of the drive that, that leads to that. So we've got to be careful that it's not just about a better product, but it is um, something that, that the board appreciates and is driving down through the organisation. Yeah, absolutely. Paul, tell us a bit about the work you've been doing around social impact investing, because I'm not sure, it's been around for a while, we had a good track record early on, didn't we, with, with some of the things that we set up with um, Big Society Capital. but. Yeah. Where are we now? What does it actually mean to people? Well, it, it, the, the, the work that I've been involved with is a task force that was created by the government. And just to correct, I'm afraid, your introduction, I'm not the chairman of the task force. Oh, I beg your pardon. I, I'm on the steering group, but I'm chairing the reporting side of that, which is... Um, Elevated sort of, you. A, 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 and a, the, the chairman is Elizabeth Corley, who is the most amazingly dynamic character and you know this whole thing has got its um 
drive and momentum through her energy. So I wouldn't like to uh, replace her. Um, but it started with Theresa May as the Prime Minister a year ago, basically saying that how do we unlock capital to create um, less inequality in society? And a part of that was to answer an important question, which was how can the providers of savings and pensions and investments engage with individuals to enable them to, to support e more easily the things they care about through their investments. Now, that isn't necessarily retail investments, but it is the choice being available. And the financial services sector as a whole does not really give that choice to individuals to, to care. So if you were to challenge your pension fund, you know, managers, etc., are they able to provide you with an understanding of the different choices that you could make or they could make? Well, the financial services sector has been, shall we say, slow in, in get, getting to that place. Because actually the survey that, that was done showed that 56% of people said that they were interested in buying social impact investments but only 9% actually invested in the sector. So why? What is a social impact investment for those people who might not know? Well, actually, it's not a simple answer. Okay. Um, I, I wish it was, because at one end, you've got the big society where effectively, and Nigel Kershaw, who's the chairman of the um, big society, will, will be, uh, crucify me for this, but... At one end, it's virtually philanthropy. So you're putting in investments which you know are going to make losses. Okay? And they're not complete losses, but they are going to make losses. And, of course, the other end, there is no consideration of social impact. And in between there, there are lots of ESG-type funds, um, but, but there are subtle differences. So when you set out, what we're saying is that when you set out, you should have dual incentive as a fund. One is to provide wealth creation, value creation in the fund, but also to make sure that your social impact is positive. Okay. okay? Not, not necessarily that the social impact makes the investment better just because you should be doing both. And that's really where we're coming from. And you're measuring social impact how? That is the crux of the... You've, I you've, it might be. You've, you've hit, <laughs> hit the nail on the head, absolutely. Because a lot of people probably will remember things like the social impact bonds, the yeah. Peterborough prison experiment, the use of government money to fund basic social activities. Um, and there was a lot of debate about whether they were A, good value for money or did what they were supposed to do. So... In terms of the work that you do, how are you just quickly measuring yeah. social impact? Give us a you know well, a couple of again. I know I'm being I'm doing the sort of politician's view of um, I'm not going to answer your question. I'll go around it. I, I apologise. Promise we won't chuck you out. Uh, okay, but but what we're trying to do is to say okay, what are the barriers, the obstacles? and let's solve some of those. So we're not coming up with a solution. We're not saying, 
here is how you measure and here is how you report um, on that. What we're saying is, um, effectively, there are some key challenges that we need to bottom out. So not just to put them in the, the, um, in the dialogue, but to actually try to resolve. And those range from a shared language, you know, just as we talked about on, on what does impact mean, to the visibility, which is what you're talking about, to comparability, so that you know, the measurement is comparable, and then to having confidence in the measure. Um, and what we're doing is we're, at the moment, we're doing a, a landscape map of what's out there. We are actually just releasing, possibly today, the, um, the call for evidence. So trying to get people to come forward with what's there that, that can be used. And then later on, we'll be um, trying to um, look for some sort of coalescence there where, where we can show what is good practice and might, what might work. I haven't got an answer. Michael, you're looking sceptical. Yeah, I, uh, I sympathise with Paul, but it goes back somewhat to my earlier example of light bulbs. You know, So you want me to make a donation and an investment. Good. How much is the donation? Right? And does the investment pay? And you leave the strictures off. Second thing is, it would be really good to build some schools in the neighborhood I'm sticking a factory in. Well, I can do that selfishly, again, on future volatility reduction. You know, I need good workers, I need them educated, so why don't I do this and fix a government failing? I think the third thing I find is the hypocrisy in it from a governmental perspective. Um, we in long finance have for about a dozen years proposed what are called policy performance bonds. And these are bonds that do the reverse. They hold government policies' feet to the fire. So, you know, as a green investor, uh, probably the worst thing to do is to follow UK government policy <laughs> over the last 20 years. Um, so what you actually want is something. If the government says we're going to achieve 25% renewables in the network or something, great. Issue a bond that I can purchase. It pays me a percentage, say, Every percentage is below 25%. Back to your example earlier about renewables, Paul. You know, and I can actually buy that in proportion to how much I trust or mistrust the government. I'm not hedging via fossil fuels. And I'm actually pushing the government to keep its promises in broad policy targets. And before people laugh at this idea, this is what Margaret Thatcher introduced in 1982 when she was unable to get funding for the country because nobody abroad believed that Britain could control inflation. There wasn't a direct correlation. You know, inflation is monetary policy, employment, uh, productivity, a lot of factors involved in it. But she took a bet against the investors, and that's the way that it works. So I would encourage a lot more on the other foot. Further, that's a far larger bond market. Jessica, quickly. Okay, just two quick points to pick up on what Paul had said. I think for me, at the heart of it, every investment has an impact, social, environmental, financial, economic. So to try and pigeonhole, whether it's social impact, green finance, into a bucket doesn't work. And it's really vital to be more deliberate about how what the consequences of every single investment 
are going to be. So by having that kind of integrated approach, really understanding the impacts from an investment, you can really shift and potentially do some quite simple things to have that kind of positive impact, reduce the negative, and that's surely got to be a good thing and something that any sensible individual investor company government um, wants to achieve at the heart of that is having the information and if you think of things like pension funds there's quite a lot of discussion at the moment of can you communicate those kind of broad range of impacts in the same way as you for your annual report you get the financial performance what have those broader impacts been and how can you therefore influence that one link to that we are doing a lot of work around um financing with the CFO leadership network within A4S. And one of the companies, um, Olam, who's based in Singapore, is a great example of how you're starting to get really tangible incentivization. There's belief that by improving your social environmental performance, you are lower risk for investors. They've recently set up a pretty significant um, revolving credit facility, so some some debt finance that they can access, and they get a significantly reduced cost of debt if they can perform on a whole range of social and environmental metrics. So it's really very tangible in terms of the performance, but you get that benefit. Paul, did you want to come back? No, I, I, I actually accept the, um, the, the comments from both Michael and Jessica, uh, absolutely. Um, I, I do think think though that if we go back to how can an individual know that um that that is part of the challenge and whilst i'm not um I, you know I, I, as i said i think i think the 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 problem of integration and the problem of of making sure that that government policy is you know is, is used if you like as a as a um a method to to create um um, investment is is perfectly valid, but you know w we in this project are not trying to solve the whole problem. It's coming from the financial services sector to see how you can make sure that that, that consumers can see what they that they want to be investing. In. Yeah, clarity. I'm going to give you a minute, Michael. It's Thirty we seconds. Um, I mean, one of the things that bugs me in this discussion about investors connecting with their finances is the in-between role of the agents. Yeah. So we have institutional agents, yeah. not investors. In this year of the suffragette, I'd like to say, let's give them the vote. <laughs> uh, and I'm not saying investors will take it up, no. but the next problem is getting them to take it up. But the pension funds aren't taking it up anyway. Absolutely so right. why do we agonize over this? And there are ways where we could deliberately make votes transferable to the institution. I run it through a pension fund that, that I am allowed to vote on company policy. And I find the hypocrisy again in this uh, rather disgusting. And you've also got the proxy agents who create, yeah. you know, lots of the decisions. Another yeah. whole pod discussion, yeah, I think, has just opened up. So we might have to have green finance too. Thank you all so much. Absolutely fascinating. And all of the reports and documentation and links that you refer to, we'll put up on the, the website. So you can find those on theplanetpod.com um, do get in contact with us and tweet us if you have any comments at 
the planet underscore pod. My huge thanks to my guests, Michael, Paul and Jessica, to Jim, our producer, who has kept us in track as always, and to Breakthrough Funding, who helps release funds for innovation around sustainability through the work that they do, um, tax credits. So huge thank you to those. Planet Pod is brought to you by Accio Management and The Planet Mark. Um, do download, subscribe, listen again endlessly fascinating conversations and I think as a result of today we've probably got another guest list um, to invite so I would echo Michael's words in the anniversary of the suffragettes a vote to empower individuals so we can perhaps turn a spotlight onto big business and demand change around green finance thank you all so much for joining me